It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. And welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses, and you are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And of course, that is 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, and uh, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in 106.5 ELMNTFM or 95.7 ELMNTFM, listen on your device of choice anywhere across the country. As I said, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And I would like to welcome uh, my guest to the show today. And um, actually, uh, I'm, I'm excited to speak with him uh, because he's got this really cool show that we're going to talk about. But uh, before we get there, I want to tell you uh, a little bit about him. He is a director, a producer, an editor, and a writer of many television programs ranging uh, from comedy, variety, reality programming, competition programming, and do- and documentary series. And his name is Barry Davis. He is the executive uh, director of The Wild Ones, which uh, premiered on the 20th of January on the History Network. And uh, it's a pleasure to have you here, Barry. Thanks for coming in. Thanks very much, David. When you say it, it, it does sound like I get bored easily, which is not true. <laughs> <laughs> bored easy? No, I think that what you're into, uh, from what I could see, looks like a lot of fun and very interesting. Yeah, somehow all of those different genres of television all somehow managed to piggyback and dovetail off of one another. So uh, despite having done... Competition shows, reality shows, hidden camera shows, they all somehow, uh, the skill set somehow funnels down to being the right thing at the right time for whatever it is, story I'm trying to tell for for people. Okay, well, that skill set you're talking about, you're a graduate of Ryerson. Yep. Now, uh, from Ryerson, of course, uh, you had a passion for editing and broadcasting design and visual effects at that point in time, and, uh, but you didn't sort of, I guess launch into that right away? You you worked on some network branding uh, and packages and stuff? Yeah, I, I started my career actually at, at uh, TSN, the Sports Network, when I was still at Ryerson. And uh, it was a fantastic place to start because there were so many people there who, I we, it was like the movie Logan's Run, which is dating myself pretty badly, but a, a movie where nobody lives past 30. Mm. And so uh, TSN was a fantastic place to start because everybody was so young and energetic and full of new ideas and trying to carve out a space and a specialty television thing which was totally brand new Mm. in the country and so everything was up for discussion everything was game you were free to try a new thing so i started out as an editor um uh, sort of working on daily news shows and putting things together and sort of gradually pushed my way into doing longer form programs and i think some people sort of took notice of that and uh when discovery channel eventually launched in canada a lot of people who were uh, contemporaries at TSN moved into uh, working at Discovery Channel. And I was lucky enough to make that leap as well with those guys. And then I started doing longer format docs and and those kind of things. And uh, my experience as an editor really helped shape story and understand what to shoot and how to shoot it. Mm. And so, yeah, I've kind of never looked back after making that move from, from editing into producing and directing at Discovery. Uh, what would you say the other skills are that you need, though? I mean, there's great editors, and that's what they focus on. So what are the other skills that you, you found in yourself that allowed you to make that leap? I think the the trick is like a lot of, I guess, what people call soft skills. Mm. You, you really have to know what it is. If you're at a dinner party and somebody's telling you a story and you are kind of find your, your mind wandering, you have to think, well, if I was telling this story and I wanted somebody's attention, what's, what's the most important part of this story? 
what what should I be leading with? Uh, how do I keep them engaged? How do I uh, how do I you'll never guess what happened then? Then she opened the car door and you'll never guess who was inside. Like those kind of things of just how to how to lay out the story. And a lot of it comes from editing. Mm. But once you've been working with cameras and you've done a, as you've, you've done many interviews, you start to understand what makes people tick and, and how you can take whatever it is that they're doing and 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 capitalize it for an audience to understand it and get passionate about it the same way that you are. Okay. So is there, if you think back to your early days when you were either at, at TSN or you went over to Discovery, uh, is there anything that, that you remember at that point in time that jumps out at you as, a, as either an aha moment or, or yeah, this, this, this is going to be good kind of thing? I think it's, it always comes back down to doing interviews with people, mm. really. I think like as much as you, I am a pretty visual guy. I really push camera people and, and affects people to do kind of great things. I think we're not here to do what has been done before. Every time we try to do something, we need to push it farther. We mm. need to take people in a place they haven't been before, try something new. And so I'm always doing that on a visual side. But ultimately, uh, you know, somebody once told me that everything comes down to the people who are in it. Mm. And yeah. I think that that is kind of the key. It's, it's really um, the connections. You're trying to make a connection with somebody on the other side of the lens. And then you have to be able to make that connection go through all the technology mm. to get through the edit suite to get onto television or onto the web or wherever you're going to put this thing and and let the audience have that same kind of relationship and the, those aha moments. So I would say in those interview situations when you're talking to somebody and you really feel like you're they're telling you something fresh for the first time and then you feel like I think we're we're on to something. I think uh, you know you see a sparkle in somebody's eye. You see them sort of light up when they tell something they've probably told a hundred million times, and you think, yeah, this now we're doing something, and th you know that that's going to translate and it's going to get through. So when you have those kind of aha moments, you, you just want to keep doing more of it. Uh, as you said, uh, most stories come down to uh, the strength of the story, I guess, in many ways. But you just mentioned something, and I and I. I was thinking, yeah, well, technologically advances and, and those kind of things are happening all the time. Um, does it ever get blurry or, or tempting <laughs> right, to want to use something uh, in a story or in, a, in, in, a, in one of the, the things that you're doing that, uh, that would be great? Uh, and, and I guess, you know, can get blurry, and this is what I'm getting at, uh, where you're not sure if it's the right kind of technical effect to use for whatever you're doing. You know what I mean? Yeah. A lot of times I think the, especially the, the buzzword in our, our world today, especially with any kind of immersive doc or reality mm. is really being immersive, like giving people as much as of a ride as you can. And you think of a show like Ice Road Truckers or, uh, you know, uh, Naked and Afraid, mm. those types of shows where, you're really trying to transport the audience into a situation that they're not. I'm never going to sure. be driving a truck right. in northern Manitoba. Like, it's not going to happen. Mm. But I need to get you to feel what it's like to drive onto that ice. Yep. And so I think that those, uh, I would say, uh, you're actually trying to see through the blurry stuff and get to the clarity of how do we how do we give somebody this experience of driving across this ice at 3 o'clock in the morning? How do we give an experience of somebody who's in the middle of an adventure race or – in the case of a hidden camera show, who is thinks the Bigfoot is on the other side of that motorhome, uh, that's we've done all of those things, and it's it's really like I think using the the tools at your disposal to kind of get that immersive thing. That's the the key. Other than making the connection with the the person you're interviewing, is trying to whatever the setting is, 
mm. putting the people there because mm. it's a lot of times where I go, it's pretty remote. It's very off the map and it's you want people to feel what it's like when you're there personally. As you were saying that, something that popped into my head, fix it in edit, right? Fix it in the edit. How often does that happen in working on projects? I think like uh, it is a good uh, point about here and how much torquing goes on in, in these kind of stories. And I think the uh, the one thing that's, I would say, unique about the, the Wild Ones the, that's been on history for a couple of weeks now and, and uh, is, is uh, Seville Every Monday Night kind of thing on history. But that one is like they're, you know, in a hidden camera show or something, you, mm. you're constantly, it's a horror movie. You're constantly torquing it to kind of keep people on the edge of their seat and not mm. know what's happening. And you're free to kind of move things around to sort of heighten that element. I would say in in an endeavor like this where there's, uh, I, it's more akin to where I started, which is a sporting event. Mm. There's a built-in beginning, middle, and end. Mm. You know, uh, there's a first period, a second period, a third period to to trying to do what these guys are trying to do. And so you can kind of like uh, get a bit more insight from them from interviews after the fact. But when the thing is actually happening, as much as we'd love to be able to say, can we just uh, do that again? Mm. Well, no, right. there was one chance at it and <laughs> so, that's what happened. Right. So it, it it's uh, it's frightening, I got to say, to do what I do when that's the situation. I love having control. And when you go in situations and you don't have it, it's frightening. Uh, it's exciting when you get back to the edit suite and you're looking at the stuff and saying, oh, my gosh, like there was one camera guy who disappeared for three hours. We didn't know where he was, but mm. he happened to be right in the middle of the action. Thank mm. God. Right. And so those things are great, but it, it's it's uh, it's super nerve wracking when you don't have control. But uh, the, there's not a lot of torquing that's necessary here because the narrative is so powerful. OK, I have to ask you this when you said you, you like control. What happens when things are out of your control and I don't know, equipment messes up. You this, <laughs> lost the shot. I mean, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, this this particular uh, program is filmed in the Nimaya Valley, which is super remote, British Columbia. You, if you got in a helicopter and flew, you know, what is it, 160 kilometers north uh, east of Whistler, I guess, you're flying over vast stretches of wilderness. There's nothing. And then you end up in this valley on Choco Lake, and and it's it's remote. There's no hydro wires going in there. There's no mm. cell phone coverage. There's running water in half the houses. And so, uh, right away, uh, oh, I'll just text my buddy, the camera guy, find out where he is. That doesn't work. Your radios don't work mm. on the other side of a mountain. Sure. And uh, so there's great stretches of time where you have no comms with anybody, and uh, our. Endeavor is always at the mercy of the weather. Mm. And uh, like you said, the technical equipment, uh, there's no electricity there. So uh, do we have enough batteries charged just to keep ourselves up and running? Do we have to send somebody back in an ATV to somewhere where there's a generator to keep batteries going? So uh, all we can do is, um, I would always tell the crew, you know, there's, there's, it's no effort is wasted in this endeavor. We just don't know when it's going to pay off. Right. But if you stop working, if you stop putting your oar in the water and you stop paddling, we're dead. Mm. So keep fighting, keep trying to control the uncontrollable and mm. somehow we'll get there. And then you do, but it's, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, you're just, you're fighting every single day all the time. Uh, Barry Davis is my guest. He, he's uh, the executive producer of the wild ones. He's been talking about the wild ones. Uh, I've been sort of talking more in generalities, um, and we do want to get to the wild ones and talk more specifically about that, but I've been trying to, uh, you know, entice the, the listeners into the yeah. story a little bit here ourselves. 
Um, and you know, if if anyone has seen it, uh, they certainly will see the 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 wonderful footage and the beautiful images. There's something magical about just watching horses on screen, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, I I have to confess that I, I was not. I'm probably I'm not a horse expert by any mm-hmm. stretch, and I I kind of loosely. Like I knew people who had horses. I, I didn't know kind of what the attraction was. But I think every person has seen a picture on a calendar of a mm. wild horse in a mm. snowstorm and mm. how majestic that looks. And uh, I had experience doing a lot of filming in Nevada and Arizona and California. And so I knew about wild horses down there. But in in America, they have uh, so many wild horses in those states. And the Bureau of Land Management is in an agreement with ranchers to get those horses off of the grazing lands and put them in giant horse jails. So that was my experience with with mm. wild horses. Like that that in in America they're a problem and they're not managed terribly well and uh it's a sort of road to disaster. And so when I became aware of the ones up in Canada, especially in Nimaya and the Brittany Triangle, that's where my mind was and it was pretty mm. it was the wrong impression. Mm. Like these these horses are uh, unlike American horses in that the horses in Nimai and the Brittany Triangle are rare. There are not a lot of them up there. They've somehow managed to survive for hundreds of years, and they are uh, majestic, incredibly strong, incredibly smart, living in a place where nature says they shouldn't live. The terrain is inhospitable. The climate's impossible. The food is scarce, and there's grizzly bears, wolves, and cougars mm. all over the place. Mm. And somehow these things are able to survive. So when uh, getting back to what is it that attracts you and why do you end up where you are, are ending up and what makes a story compelling, when you hear about something that is surviving in a place that it shouldn't, and how is it possible? How, how can these things exist up there? Right away, I was interested because unlike any other wild horse story that I'd ever heard before, and uh, I just had to get a look at them once I heard about it. So I want to talk a little bit about that, of course. But, you know, coming back to the title itself, The Wild Ones, uh, when I first saw the title, I didn't think it was about horses, first of all. You know, I thought a motorcycle gang or something. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and so it, it's interesting also because there's a couple of angles that I I didn't see coming around this. One, they are in, they're endangered. There's a, there's a population de- decrease. And... and you're dealing, as you pointed out, with wild horses. These are wild horses, and uh, I can just imagine getting a crew around wild horses. That if you get kicked by one of those things, but buddy, you're you're in serious shape. Uh, it's so happened. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and you don't want your equipment to get kicked by that stuff either. Yeah. But before we got there, yeah. you know, one of the challenges you spoke about being there. Um, was what was some of the the technical issues that you had to you know make sure you got batteries and all those kind of things, but going back again to your your history in in this industry, uh, I'm sure that now as even opposed to maybe 20 25 years ago, it's a lot easier than it used to be. Just size of the cameras, the batteries, all that kind of stuff. No tape, you know, yeah. all that all that stuff, right? Yeah, except when people want it in 4K. Oh, then, right, right. Okay. <laughs> and then it's, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, now now we have to bring more hard drives and more okay. guys and yeah, yeah. all that kind of stuff. But yeah, it's, it's I think like the you're right about the 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 wildies right away pose uh, a problem for us because they, you know, uh, their situation up there in uh, in Nimaya is that they are in some crazy way, victims of their own success. They Mm. are able to somehow survive up there. And so 
you will get a situation where if there's enough food around for them, they will overbreed. And then, as I was saying, everybody's seen that picture on the calendar of the beautiful horse standing in the snowstorm. Mm. When you're up there in Nimaya, you look on the left or right of that, and you'll see another 10 horses in the in the uh, woods shivering and uh, mm. uh, skeletons. Mm. And you realize that they they need to be managed in a way that for that herd to survive and be strong and, and continue for another 300 years, it does need management. And that's the honey guttine up there have done it for 300 years and continue to do it. And without it, uh, you'd have to be a pretty cold-hearted person to say, oh, I'm just going to let nature take its course and watch what happens to these guys. Because it's it's when you are driving down a dirt road there and you see a horse at 3 o'clock in the morning and it's minus 30 outside and it's staring you in the eyes – and you know that it's standing by the road because it's terrified of something in the bush. Mm. Um, it's you realize that you. I don't know how you can't not do something about it. So they're trying to do their best by those horses and keep them around. But it's like once we knew that that endeavor existed, trying to point the cameras at it, like you said, with the technology and all of the stuff that we need to bring up there, it's it becomes very very difficult to to manage and move around. Um, you know, you, you, you mentioned a couple of things and you said you weren't necessarily a horse person. Uh, and, and I'm, I'm just wondering, it sounds to me uh, like you, you've gained some, uh, a new respect for these animals. Uh, the other thing I was wondering about, uh, if you want to address that. Yeah. The, the, uh, it's funny cause I, you know, in the middle of filming, I came back home and I was watching some equestrian events on, on television with my mom and, and, uh, you know, you'd see a horse like. Some, you know, uh, prissy dude is riding a horse and riding it and they jump a, a little barricade and go over a, a thing of water or whatever. And I just was looking at it and it's like no disrespect to those guys and those horses because they're amazing. But I had just come from Nimaya where I watched horses, wild horses, jump an eight foot fence from a standstill like nothing. And, you know, as Amanda Lulua and Howard Lulua, two of the chasers in the show, will tell you, these aren't your backyard ponies. They're just on another level in terms of their athleticism and their cardio because they live on hills. So mm. if you imagine if you're a triathlete or, a, or a, you run marathons, you know what hill repeats are like and you're going up and down and you're just gassing your lungs. These horses do that all the time every day. And so when you're trying to put the, the, the chase on them, they, they kind of laugh at you because they're so fit. <laughs> and then they also are used to eluding cougars and, yeah. and wolves. Sure. And so the idea that a, a uh, four guys who weigh 200 pounds each chasing them on horseback are actually going to have any kind of impact on them is a bit quaint. Mm. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's so I was I came from it in that way where I didn't realize that, like I said, the, you know, the experience if you're used to see, seeing or hearing about wild horses in America and that Mustangs are a problem and there's too many of them and they're uh, they're inbred and they're a dime a dozen. These are kind of unicorns or the polar opposite of that in, in many ways. And then what what comes from working with them is I'm uh, I always tell people that you know we if you've got a dog or a cat you know the dog or the cat's always trying to talk to you mm. it, it wants food it wants things it doesn't want to go to the vet it's trying to communicate to you and I didn't realize that horses are absolutely like doing that on a whole other level and that the way that you uh, the way that uh, a trainer might interact with this horse works great and the horse loves it and then it's like a kid. You talk to the next kid that way, and it looks at you like you're from outer space. And it's like, why are you patronizing me? You don't need to patronize me. <laughs> so there, it's I, that was the most fascinating thing for me is like the the wildies when you get them in is that 
it's it's a you got to learn how to deal with a, a sort of uh, like you said. Why do we call the wild ones? In my mind, these are like it's almost like a street gang. Those horses. You've got to figure out a way to communicate with them, uh, break down the barriers. They're wildies. They have they they think the world w- works in one way, and this is how they've been able to navigate and survive it. You change the game on them, and you and they have to figure out what's the way forward. And and it's it, that dialogue I want to say between people and horses is fascinating to watch. Uh, the voice you just heard is that of uh, Barry Davis. He is the executive uh, director of The Wild Ones, as he mentioned, and it's a uh, 10-part, uh, one-hour uh, one hour series uh, on the History Channel um, uh, that started on January 20th. Um, and uh, it's it, it sounds and looks like a great series. There are many aspects to this. Uh, Barry, you mentioned uh, where, where it was filmed in the uh, is it Nima in Nimaya in the Nimaya Valley and the other side of that is of course that uh, and you mentioned this earlier as well that that this herd of horses the, these wild horses have been managed uh, by the indigenous people of that area for some 300 years to help keep uh, the population healthy and of course make make sure they they maintain but they are a they they are wild um now the the other thing about that is, of course, and as you were talking, I was wondering. Uh, uh, you said you'd gained this respect for them, and, and you know, I I know someone who works with horses, and and first thing I thought of earlier in was, you know, the horses are restless, right? And that whole that line we've heard yeah. from so many movies in the past. There's truth to that, of course, because they are extremely sensitive beings. For sure. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but I know someone that works with horses who uses them as for therapy. And I know this yeah. is probably getting more and more widely used as they are used to interact with people. Yeah. Uh, and, and they're quite apparently something uh, to work with on that sensitive level yeah. because of what they are able to bring out of you, which, you know, who would have ever thought that? I would not have put that together. But Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we saw their, uh, you know, uh, Part of the the series is, you know, in the wild ones, we look at the the sort of chase team who are there's uh, that chase team is composed of uh, Huntington cowboys who who grew up doing this and and are skilled riders and able to like read the terrain, know what the wildies are going to do. That team also has experienced horse trainers on it, yep. and and has uh you know uh, as all teams do has some rookies and up and comers and part of the. The rookie chaser story is pretty fascinating because what you're describing with with horses having an impact on people is very dramatic and and it comes across on on screen pretty amazingly. Like we started the conversation talking about how much we have to torque things and move mm. things around. When when there's a a young you know uh, a guy who's had trouble with the law and um, you know uh, trying to figure out what his next steps are, young Huntington guy mm. uh, Lashway Lulua. And when you see him working with a, a horse that came fresh off the hillside, living, trying to sort of um, imagine, you know, let his mind go to what it was would have been like for his grandfather when there was no road into Namaya. It only came in, in the 70s. So if you wanted to get somewhere, you needed a horse. And the way to get a horse was to go grow, um, off the hills, train it, yeah. make a relationship with it and hope that it doesn't kill you. Mm. And somehow you guys are going to come to an understanding and figure out how to work together and so in the show, we, we see a few people go in and, um, and try to train a horse, and they quickly get schooled by the horse, <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> you know, because, uh, like I said, that horse, 
it's it's it may have lived five or six years in the wild. It in his in in that horse's mind, uh, like I said, they're restless. Sure. Its mind is, I got to figure out where I'm eating in a few hours. Mm-hmm. I figure out how I'm going to sleep tonight yeah. without getting killed. Yeah. Um, if I'm if I'm a stallion, I got to figure out how can I get some mares and how can I knock the guy off who mm-hmm. is right now controlling this herd because mm-hmm. I want these girls for myself. Mm-hmm. And if I don't do that and I get the snot knocked out of me by this guy, where am I going? Right. So it's a it's a rough, rough life. And so it's kind of interesting parallels. You take a kid who's had hard knocks at living in Williams Lake and trying to figure out how to navigate this world like all of us do. Mm. And then you, you put him with a horse who's in a similar situation and uh, two tough guys going at it, and you're no match for a 1,000-pound stallion who uh, is not going to take your crap. <laughs> right. Now that sounds like uh, is that a, sort of a little bit of a segue to th- that, that maybe that that's one of the one of the themes that is playing out in this series for sure. I think like uh, I think if you're an action adventure person, which is kind of where I come from, I've done a lot of adventure television, uh, doing mountain climbing and all sorts of crazy stuff like that. There's a lot of it in here because mm. it, there's a lot of adrenaline and action in trying to get those horses in and. Uh, in the first place, right. uh, you know, like the question is always, why are they chasing them in the first place? And right. It's like the the great thing about uh, chasing them on horseback is if you're in America and you see the images of guys getting helicopters, they fly over them. You don't know if you're chasing a three-year-old, a five-year-old. Mm. You don't know if there's four mares in there and two right. stallions. You don't know what it, it is. You're just flying in a helicopter. And if you start like uh, blast them with tranquilizer guns and then running up and seeing, oh, it's we could catch this guy. Uh, you could hurt, you could easily injure them. Uh, you don't know how a horse is going to react to an anesthetic. These guys are more, they stand on a hillside and they say, we want to get that group of bachelors in. But if those two girls are with them, I say girls, they say mares. <laughs> but, uh, you know, if those two mares are with them, it's a no-go because mm. uh, one of them is pregnant and we don't mm. want to chase her. Mm. And so they're... They know exactly what they're doing and how to how to target them. Right. So, uh, so there's that sort of like there's a bit of I would say I, I always tell people it's a bit like Dog the Bounty Hunter in that mm, way, mm. where they they kind of like they they look at the pictures of them almost and say who are we going after? Mm. Why do we want to get that one? What's going to happen to it if we get it? Mm. And then a lot of times, as in Dog the Bounty Hunter, they go out there and it's like, uh, we thought he was going to be at the 7-Eleven, but it turns out he didn't go there. Right. So we stake out some pond or something and mm. the horse doesn't go there, we're dead. So there's that kind of like a bit of detective work mm. and then a bit of like, let's bring it in. And then like you said, the the, the sort of uh, follow-up to that is what happens to those horses? And mm. I think like we've we've tried to make you have a connection with those horses the same way you do the people. So right. the horses that have been caught, what's their future? What what what's their what's their destiny now? And when you when the hunting routine catch a horse, it's a if it's young, that horse can live to 30 years old. So it's a 20, 25 year commitment you're making mm-hmm. when you take it off the hill. Mm-hmm. You better have a plan. Right. Um, uh, great. Uh, I, there's some some wonderful things that I see that that could uh, evolve through this series, as you mentioned. Just this this 
one of tying that to guy the troubled guy from the community and tying it in with the uh, you know that that the equal sort of uh, story that's happening with the horses I think that's that's great and, and that's just makes it more interesting for people to watch and 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 uh, grab onto right totally I mean you're looking for I think like the the one thing that you you'll realize when you watch it as well is that the the when when people decide that something is important to them mm. and they put themselves in harm's way like that's how mm. badly they want to mm. make a difference in this mm. and then you won't see it so much on the on the screen because we've we've cut out ourselves sure. in it of course but uh you know like when we're trying to film this thing and if we put ourselves in a place where the chasers are going to get hurt the wildies are going to get hurt the 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 cowboys would say you guys can't stand there you need mm-hmm. to be over here i understand mm-hmm. what you're trying to do but the horses will right. will, will not want to go that way and if you go that way they could get over a cliff and they're sure. going to get hurt so right. they would call it kind of push us into where we needed to go right. uh to to get them uh, to get it done but they're um uh i think you know like when you're looking for those connections as an, as an audience it, i may never chase horses but I think if you watch these guys and you realize when people put themselves in harm's way for something that matters to them and they work so hard to try and make a difference, I think you can't help but think, uh, what, what, what have I turned my back on that is difficult for me to do? And um, if, you can, if you can find some kinship with these guys because of that is another way into it. That's what I mean. If, if you're not a horse person, it doesn't matter. Right. <laughs> you know, like that's, I'm, I'm not a horse person mm. and I'm captivated by these stories sure. because they are, uh, they're relatable in so many ways. Yeah, and, you know, the other thing you just, you just uh, sort of found interesting when you were explaining that was the, the, these, uh, the, these cowboys, uh, these indigenous cowboys and, and, and the others, the professional cowboys that are in there, uh, really, it really sounds from what you're saying is that, that not only do they know how to go after these horses, but they know this country as from what you were describing. They know the like at the back of their hands. So uh, that's that's uh, I, from what you're you're describing, and not just from filming it, but from knowing how to approach these horses and go after them. It's crucial that they know that stuff. Yeah, that's it's it, it is like uh you know when you get out there people always think like oh what do you need to be able to do to to ride and chase horses in mm. Maya mm. because a lot of them come from racing backgrounds mm. rodeo backgrounds like mm. the indigenous guys are very very skilled riders and they're competitive and they they compete in events but it, it you can't take somebody who's uh who's done bucking bronco or has been a thoroughbred racer or something and put them out there and expect them to be successful at this because the guys who are, you know, the, that you meet in the series, Chief Jimmy Lilua, Howard Lilua, his wife Amanda, Emery Phillips, these guys grew up in Nimaya. The first memories they have are being on horseback for mm. Howard and Chief Jimmy. Their dad would say, you know, we're going to get horses and they, they're getting thrown on a horseback at five, six years old. They don't mm. even know how to ride and now they're out chasing. So they, but that lifetime of experience tells them that the horses in this particular area, if there's pressure on them from either the guys chasing them or from predators, this is where they're going to go. This is what they're going to do. They've been schooled in it for decades, hundreds of years possibly, about where to go. So you can see these horse trails that have been, these are their escape paths. This is how they get away from trouble. And uh, when you're when you're running after them, if something deviates from that, you want somebody who knows that terrain like the back of their hand. You go down that drainage, you can cross the river here, but you can't cross it here. If you go uh, this way, you're going to be in a world of hurt, and your your horse 
is not going to be able to keep with the wildies because it's going to go steep. You better get on the radio and tell somebody that they've gone around. Mm. And that's why it's like, uh, you know, when you watch this series and you think, oh, you know, uh, I'd love to ride. I could get out there and I'd love to give it a go. The it's you need an uh, you know an interior GPS to mm. just know where to go and how mm-hmm. to do it and the behavior of the horses. Of that, course, yeah, the, how the horses are going to think. Right? Yeah, exactly. Be one step ahead of them, and, and they know this area as well as you do. Right? Totally. And the, the most basic thing that the uh, you know uh, a lot of the the most basic way they they would sort of try and get the horses is to uh, find horses that are close, you know, in a in a clearing where you can see them, so they're not buried in the trees. And then the, you know, scattered across the valley are, are catch pens, sort of long shoots that look like a funnel and that end up in a, in a corral, maybe 30 feet in diameter or so, maybe a little larger, and with sort of eight foot high fences. And so the, the, the game is to try and put a bit of pressure on the horses so that they start heading in a direction that you want them to go in. And then sooner or later, they find themselves in that funnel. And you can kind of push them into the place that you want them to get to. And if there's some that you don't want to get in there, you can encourage them to turn around and get out. And you can kind of direct the ones that you want to get in to get into the the catch pen. So across Nimaya, uh Valley, there's a few of these catch pens that have been built over the uh, mm. you know decades. And some of them have fallen into disrepair. Some of them are sure. are well maintained. But it's because that they they know those horses are always going to go in these directions. So They've built that catch pen and and they try and get them in there. I make it sound like it's a slam dunk, which it is anything but. <laughs> well, not from what you're saying about the how these horses are, are almost yeah. like super superhuman or super yeah. horses, and then they can do uh, incredible things. Yeah. Um, that's great. You've talked to us about why this was interesting to you. How did you find out about this though? Yeah, this goes back to uh, th- there's a series people might remember called uh, Man Tracker where oh, yeah. uh, Terry Grant would, would go around and he would uh, mm. uh, chase a couple of people who wanted to get away from a guy on a horse. And uh, that was produced by a guy named Ehor Masachewski, who uh, Ehor shot a number of episodes, of course, out in, in British Columbia. And so in and around Nimayan had been there a couple of times. But, you know, every time they're out there, they share stories around the campfire about the wild horses in that area. And so he was pretty intrigued by it and went out in 2017 to have a look for himself, did a little bit of filming with the the guys out there, came back, talked to me and a bunch of other people, sort of chopped it around, trying to trying to sort of gauge interest. He was sort of semi-retired living in Cape Breton kind of, but was intrigued by this whole story. And, uh, you know, it takes a while to get the right kind of people interested and kind of put the dollars together. And then, you know, a year and a half later, we found ourselves out there making the TV series. But it's it really, I mean, the thank God the Honey Guatine were mm. uh, amenable to us coming out there right. and, and filming with right. them uh, t- to help make it happen. Um, we'd be nowhere without those guys. So uh, obviously, it's their land. It's it's title land. It's their place. Uh, but it's it's I think like that spark the same thing that kind of. As soon as I started to hear about those horses and and the the kind of sort of unicorn qualities that they have, um, it, you know, it, it, when he or heard about it, he ran out there with cameras, and mm. I was I was just right behind him. Yeah. Now, as you mentioned, it couldn't have happened without the support of the Honey Gutin, the, the indigenous people from the area. Yeah. Uh, how how and it's great that they were ultimately uh, you know on board. Uh, did they have concerns when you first approached them? Hundred percent, and rightly so. Mm. I think, like I, you know, when you when you go into that valley, 
And I always tell people, you know, like I think every Canadian should see Banff and, and Lake Louise and they're, you know, they're jaw dropping. They're gorgeous, sure. beautiful. It, it, we, even if you've never been to these remote places, it, it, somehow it impacts our souls as Canadians. And I find that when you get into Nimaya, I had the same kind of like experience. Like you're awed by the 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 beauty of that place. And it wouldn't be that way if those guys hadn't fought so hard to keep it that way. Right. And so when, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're coming in there with a shovel and a, and a bulldozer or you're coming in with TV cameras, they are naturally suspect because mm-hmm. most times when Mida, when white people come in there, the, uh, the expectation is that this is not going to go well. Mm-hmm. And half of the people are like, I don't care what they say. <laughs> yeah. Like, put up the drawbridge and tell them to turn around and go back. Yeah, yeah. And so we, and uh, you know, we, uh, we wanted to be able to tell the story properly and, and uh, get the right information and, and do it properly. And it, they, you know, uh, we took baby steps to get there. Mm-hmm. Like th- I think from uh, the Honeywood team have a filming protocol, which mm-hmm. is a smart Great. document yeah. that, that makes sure that their needs are respected and looked after. And they, they put a consultant with you to make sure that you're, you're not going to offend anybody and you're actually going to tell the stories properly. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, so that was a, it took a long time to just, even though we'd kind of agreed to kind of let this kind of thing go, to sort of find a way to, to work together and to, to sort of trust each other about how do we do this. And um, I think we're still working on it, to mm. be honest with you. Uh, and I hope that, you know, it's the right step forward about how we can kind of do these things because I think we can both get to where we want to go. They're very protective about how their image is portrayed sure. outside the world, in sure. the outside world. And, and rightly so, as we all are. You yeah. don't know when someone points a camera at you and does an interview with you, you don't know if that's going to be on Entertainment mm-hmm. Extra or <laughs> what's what's going to happen to that right. thing. So uh, they're very uh, guarded and careful, and I hope that we did right by them. I, I, I feel like we did, mm. so that when they watch it, the I, I would say the ultimate objective of Chief Jimmy was to have his people walk with their heads a little higher, not mm-hmm. because they need the respect or admiration of the rest of Canada, could care less, mm-hmm. just inside themselves to recognize that where they come from and what they do is important and it has value and it needs to continue and that they are a horse culture and that that's an important thing. And it doesn't matter that it's not validated by yeah. When they walk down right. the street in Vancouver, there's not sure. a guy topping them on the shoulder saying, hey, I love your cowboy hat. And right. it's really great what you're sure. doing up there. Yeah. It's great if they get validation. But really, if they just feel a pride in themselves for who they are and what they do, mm. then that's a that's a win. Mm-hmm. And I've, I kind of kept that with me. And I was like, I'm trying to do that so that, sure, if you watch it and someone wants to send fan mail to Lashway for getting this, uh, you know, snot knocked out of him by a wild horse, <laughs> that's cool. But if if he just feels like just having gone through the process that he feels yeah. on a on the tier with his grandfather, yeah. then that's great. So yeah, uh, yeah like uh, that's that was the kind of objective over the last you know uh, ten months of putting this thing together. Mm. And uh, yeah, I really hope we got there. But it, it all started with them uh, opening the door and saying we 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 you, you scare everything you're saying scares us, and mm-hmm. but we're going to do it anyway, which mm. is fantastic quality. Yeah, and of course, you know the the other thing is is just simply from what you're describing, uh, as people see in the footage, it's an absolutely gorgeous area. 
just just uh, drawing attention to it exactly. would probably have been a concern for them. Yeah, I think that that's it, absolutely because you know I, I, it's so embarrassing for me to say that you know like I didn't even know that was a Chilcot and Title land that they had mm. won that land in a Supreme Court decision in 2015 and and that was their land. It's their land to manage. Those are those horses are theirs to manage. You know, mm. uh, and they've done it before, mm-hmm. and they know. Uh, you know, a biologist might come up from Victoria to around for three days, go write a report, and they're like. Yeah. Right. Yo, we've been here for years. You want to talk to somebody? Talk to my dad. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. So, uh, like, they're, uh, and then, like I was saying, at the same time, they don't need the validation of those uh, conservation officers from Victoria. They they know inherently what, what needs to be done. So, uh, yeah, they're, um, uh, yeah, they're, they're well armed to take care of that place themselves. And it was, it's, it was, Embarrassing, but I quickly got schooled in in a bit of history of that area, and mm. I think like their ability to uh, like uh, protect that area. You know, I mean, no road went in there until the seventies, right, right. and uh, they are they need all the help they can get to kind of keep that place the way it is. Yeah. And we were worried about you know now people just driving down the road coming down there and wanting to see these wild horses. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you think you're going to drive down that road and then, you know, stop at a 7-Eleven on the way and grab a Tim Hortons <laughs> on the way back, that, yeah. that's, there isn't right. anything there. There's right. nowhere to go for lunch. Right. There's nothing right. there. Right. So uh, I think that they're worried about the encroachment. Yep. Hopefully they can manage it. But it's also like if you need to mobilize a, a contingent of people who now know what the Nimaya Valley is, mm. how special it is and what's there mm. – and if someone wants to do wrong by that area, hopefully they have a contingent of people yeah. now who, yeah. who know what it is. Right. I want to jump in and just let everyone know you're listening to Element FM, and this is Moment of Truth. And that is in Toronto and Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. And my guest is Barry Davis. He's a, uh, uh, the executive producer of the show we're talking about, The Wild Ones. It's on the History Network. It's a 10-part series, uh, 60 minutes long of each and um, he's had this incredible experience uh, uh, to film this, and I can tell you from from what I what I've seen, there's some fabulous footage that you guys were able to capture. Um, I guess the, you know one of the things that is really used a lot, of course, these days is the POV, right? The point of view with the, a lot of the GoPros and a lot of those small cameras that allow you to get somewhere that really gives you a sense of what it's like to be uh, sitting on that horse. Uh, maybe wiping out on that horse as you're riding across a river or whatever else you might be, uh, you know, up against. Yeah, those are uh, kind of invaluable for us. We've, we, we, like I said, we try to figure out ways of of uh, filming this endeavor. And you might have a group of horses that are three to four kilometers away from one of those catch pens I was talking about, the mm. long funnel mm. fence that leads you into that catch pen that you're trying to drive the horses into. And uh, our, you know, we have a contingent of you know, three, four cameras that we can, we can move around. But once you move those cameras, we can move them again because, uh, you know, y- you can't move while the horses are running sure. around because you're sure. either going to spook them, they're right. going to see you. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times we're in hides, um, we're like a hunting blind where yeah. they can't see us. Mm. And so, uh, that's our, our biggest problem. So when the chase starts, the guys go where we can't go. So we're left with uh, the GoPro, that the sort of wearable cameras, and uh, the 
the aerial drones to mm-hmm. to follow mm-hmm. where they're going, mm-hmm. and uh, and then you're trying to communicate with everybody about right. where those are and how and are they ever going to come back to where the main cameras are, <laughs> and uh, so we would sometimes try and move around to try and 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 get those uh, those pieces that we were missing and mm. take a risk to mm. to go out and see if we can get that river crossing and then come right. back to see if we can get back into the catchment before they run them in, and um, it's always a, a bit of a gamble, but the the that immersive quality I was talking about earlier about putting you in the driver's seat with those horses and the and the guys who are chasing, it really does. Uh, there's no better illustration of the athleticism and the smarts of those horses mm-hmm. than watching them when you're chasing them at 35, 40 kilometers an hour, running after them, and they just look behind you and go, "Oh, okay, I see." And then it's like you know. Uh, yeah, Sidney Crosby or something, just like, oh, okay, see ya. And it takes off. And uh, they just sort of toy with the chasers and they're that uh, fit. And uh, But anyway, it's like the, the other thing that we would see that we didn't always share with the chasers is that on the drone shots, you could see the wildies would escape, especially as the, the leaves come on the trees in the spring. And they just duck into the bush mm. and they watch the chasers just go right by them. <laughs> and uh, they they literally just peer through the, the branches and be like, there they go. And they wait. And, you know, 20 minutes later, they come walking out and they just mosey on their way. That's and so great. it's like that's, uh, you know, they, they can kind of feel like, oh, if it's the middle of the day, the heat's up. Mm. Those guys are going to quit soon. Mm. And uh, they let them go. <laughs> wow, that's great. Uh, now, is there a hierarchy with these animals in terms of the, you know, the herds that they are involved with? Oh, for sure. I think like the, you know, that's the the big thing is that I think you, you for the honey goatine to manage those herds, you, you know, you, you want the bloodline strong. You want the, the horses to continue. So it is a bit of survival of the fittest. But uh, having said that, you know, your fittest of the fit is fantastic, but your your uh, you know B and C tier are not that bad either. So it, rather than having them have a life where they're forced out of a herd because they weren't strong enough to fight for the mares, but now they're two to five years old, uh, fit, strong, smart, uh, rather than getting uh, eaten by wolves or attacked by cougars and having being forced to live as bachelors and sort of going nowhere. Can we get those horses off? Can we give them a new life and give them something to do? Mm. And um, and put the put that power and that grace to, to mm. work somehow and, mm. and let them have a life that's uh, a new one. So uh, yeah, that's their that's kind of the main uh, driving force behind the endeavor. And then you'll see like that hierarchy that we're talking about those those top dogs and those top herds when they want food and the food where they're eating is is exhausted then they'll just walk into another area and uh-huh. and take over push those other guys off and so there's herds that we would see routinely in different parts of the valley and you would get to know them and you would see them but then another time you might come into that area and those horses that you knew were gone and there's new ones in there and it's like, it's like oh they took over hmm. and they pushed the other guys out oh. and so it 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 really does uh tell you that there's a uh, there's a there's an invisible hand mm. guiding that whole operation, mm. and and it's uh, it's a nasty business. There's a lot of fights, and mm. uh, you know um, when a when a stallion decides to come into a, a herd and and take over, it's not a it's not a tap you on the shoulder saying you're out right. and I'm in. It's right. I'm gonna beat you to a pulp and I'm gonna take out all of your kids, and oh. uh, it's a rough rough right. life out there right. for these guys. 
that's that sounds very fascinating. I hope we've uh, triggered some excitement and some interest in uh, in the series for people if they haven't started to watch it yet. Now, the other thing, the other side, we haven't spent a whole lot of time talking about. We only have a few minutes left. Yeah. The Cowboys themselves, you know, uh, these guys are have not got an easy job. They have to be some tough guys themselves. Yeah, like I was talking about earlier, that's what it, it's, you know, like it's hard enough, uh, you know, for all of us to get out of bed at 5.30 in the morning, mm. get yourself on a subway, you know, get yourself to work or whatever. It's a whole different deal when you're putting a saddle on a horse mm-hmm. and it's, uh, you know, 6.30 in the morning, it's yeah. minus 18, your fingers are frozen and you got to know, you got a whole day in front of you of trying to do right by these horses, trying right. to do the right thing. You've been looking after this, you've been watching this horse for a few days. You think you might be able to make a difference for him, see if you can get him. And uh, the, you know, uh, Chief Jimmy Lulua, who was uh, sort of instrumental in helping us get this thing going, his brother Howard Lulua is kind of our main chaser. And if you've been watching the show, you've, you kind of get to know Howard a bit. And he's he's got his wife with him, who's just as a accomplished rider as as he is. Mm. And uh, he, he brings in a couple of ringers to, to help him. But between Howard and Emery Phillips and, you know, we've got Mike Hawkridge out there and Roy Mulvihill, two sort of, uh, you know, uh, transplanted uh, cowboys who've come into Namaya and have a history there to, to help mm. these guys. Like I said, it's almost like an A-team of of Right. People who are local knowledge, unbelievable riders, yep. and then um, the the horse whisperer types who yeah. can kind of communicate with the sure. horses. So when you're watching it, it's kind of like you know if there were action figures, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you'd, you'd collect them because yeah. they're they're not they're, they're not five the same person. Yeah, they all have their sort of unique skill set that they bring to it, and somehow we found the right people or they've found the right people to sort of gel yeah. and uh, and put themselves together to make this thing work from the time you're scouting them mm. to who you're trying to get and trying to make a difference to them and then hopefully put them out the other end where they're going to have mm. a fantastic life wherever right. they end up. It, it really sounds like a, a fascinating series from what uh, from what you're describing and all the different ways you can look at this. You've got you've got man and horse against horse. You've got <laughs> horse against horse. You've got <laughs> interesting stories that are linking uh, horse lives to people's lives and the struggles that are that are similar uh you've also got elements that you know just just dealing with the elements uh that you guys uh, had to had to 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 go up against as well um the smarts of the horses uh and the other thing is that you, what you try to do is that you're saying some of these horses they're trying to save they're trying to convert to some degree you know tame them so they they can have a life uh and I imagine that is not necessarily easy either with some of these animals. No, and that's one thing, I, like getting back to like the, you know, when the honey team invited us or we talked about coming out there and, and it was the struggle with the endeavor is that it takes a long time for them to do these things. It's like you might catch a horse when it's three years old, but mm. you won't ride it until it's after five or yeah. whatever. So right. luckily they had horses that they had already caught in previous chases. So some of those horses we get introduced to and so that we can see the kind of the end stages of them being delivered and, and ending up somewhere but other um, uh, other horses we see right from the beginning stages of getting scouted and, and brought in. So it's a it's a it's not something that you point cameras at it in in uh, February and it's over on August thirty first. It's mm. an ongoing mm-hmm. endeavor, right. and it takes years for them to get horses through that process. But yeah, the ultimate goal is to is to give the ones that are still have a chance, are still vulnerable, uh, at risk out there 
find a way to bring them in. And if they can use them in the Nimaya Valley, great. If they can export them somewhere else, then let's do that. But let's, uh, let's for the strength of the herd, let's make, uh, let's make a difference for these guys in a way that's going to be positive for them all. Barry, I want to thank you for coming in and, and sharing uh, all this about the show, The Wild Ones, on the History uh, Channel, and, and also uh, just the compelling story. You know, it, I mean, hey, it's got, it's got the chases in there as well, right? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it's very exciting and dealing all in a natural environment, which is, again, you know, uh, really cool. No special effects. Uh, you know, in this one, it's, uh, it's all straight ahead. Absolutely. I hope people get a chance to check it out on, on Monday Nights on History. And of course, you can check it out on the website if you yeah. don't get a chance to see it yeah. or you don't have cable. Because uh, uh, it's really, like I said, I think like uh, people will be surprised at what they find in there. You don't necessarily have to be a horse person. Uh, you know, I think you're going to find uh, yourselves by osmosis the same way I did. Just by being exposed to things, you're going to learn things that you didn't come there to learn. Uh, if you just if you're jazzed by scenery, check it out. If you love adrenaline, check it out. If you love animals, check it out, and uh, you'll find something in there that uh, that'll uh, perk your interest. I'm positive. And did you say check it out? I think you did. <laughs> so check it out. And uh, Barry, again, thanks for coming in. It's been a pleasure to have you. Barry is uh, the executive producer of the Wild Ones. Barry Davis. Uh, you can catch that uh, Sunday Sunday evenings. You said? Mondays, Mondays, and uh, yeah, make sure you do. Uh, it's got everything in there you might uh, might want to be attracted to. Uh, so please do that, Barry. Once again, thanks for coming in. Thank you, David. All right, our Ottawa reporter Caroline O'Neill spoke with the Great Canadian Theatre Company's artistic director Eric Coates about Kinelik. These sharp objects. It is both a concert and a conversation that looks at the North and the South in Canada. And this was put on in collaboration with the National Arts Centre's Indigenous Theatre. The show is on at the Great Canadian Theatre Company until February 9th in Ottawa. I was hoping you could just start off by telling us a little bit about what audiences can expect from Kinalik when it launches this week. Kinalik is advertised by the creators of the show as a concert and a conversation. So we're not talking about a, a conventional... Uh, dramatic play. What, what we have here is um, two very distinct uh, views of, of what the North means and, uh, and a conversation about that between two people who are unlike any other two people I've ever seen. And for GCTC, as you kind of mentioned, this is a little bit outside of the norm for what people might be used to seeing on your stage. What was the draw to the show? Well, there were, that's sort of a two-part answer. One of the main draws was that we were really eager to partner with uh, the new Indigenous Department at National Arts Centre, and we're very, we're very close with them professionally. Like we, we talk back and forth a lot. So uh, that was one part. We've, we found that, that they really needed a, a space to do this, to present this show, and we were very keen to provide that space. And then the the content of the show itself is is really powerful. When when I watched um, the show myself, I found uh, I found myself feeling that that our audience here in Ottawa will be um, I think profoundly moved by it and very surprised by it because it it takes on the um, it, it 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 initially delivers what seems like a very unassuming kind of conversation about who we are on this planet and where relative to where we live on the planet and then it gets very um 
very visceral, very, very powerful. And the, the Inuit uh, content in it is unlike anything anybody has ever seen in this building. And for people who might be consuming something new through the show, you do have your program stages and pages. Can you tell me a little bit about the resources that might help people who want to continue that dialogue after they've left the show? Sure. We have a wonderful partnership with the Ottawa Public Library. And uh, what the librarians do there, they they become familiar with the show before it plays in the theater. And then they assemble a, a list of, of titles that... Of, of books and or videos that that might enhance people's understanding of the piece after they've seen it, if they want to follow up. So they've assembled a, a list of both fiction and nonfiction titles uh, by Inuit authors, uh, by people writing about the North as well. So there's there's a, a full catalog of, of possible follow-up literature available. As someone who has seen the show themselves, is there anything in particular you would suggest people follow up with after? Uh, I think um, checking in on their own assumptions <laughs> about uh, uh, about how um, how you as a as someone walking around the world inter- interacts with with others and especially um, the the assumptions that uh, that we make about about what it is to be indigenous and and um, and whose responsibility it, responsibility it is to um, to make space for indigenous thought and indigenous action in in on this land. And what do you hope that the audience gets from having seen the show? Uh, a, a sense of their of what needs to be done moving forward. Uh, a sense of. Uh, our our collective responsibility to to make room for for the people who've been on this land for thousands of years and uh, and of like i say a, a, a sense of of our individual responsibility in that regard you know you mentioned how gctc jumped at the chance to work with the national arts center and gctc has been home to so many great canadian works and some world premieres do you have plans for any work similar like this, or for housing different types of Indigenous shows in the future? Yeah, very much. We're we're hoping to uh, continue the partnership with uh, the NAC Indigenous Theatre, and um, in general, we're we're just we're working to to try and um, try and build relationships with as many local Indigenous organizations as possible, so that uh, that people know that the work is happening and that. Uh, the idea of, of GCTC as as a place for you know just for white people is, is that idea has got to go away, and we uh, we have to make we have to work very hard at making sure that people understand that that, that everyone's welcome. Great, thanks for that. That's our show for today. We thank you for listening, and until next time, here on Moment of Truth and Element FN, I, I say Ongiha. I also want to say Nyawa Miigwech Wanishi and thank you to everyone who helps put Moment of Truth together. They include in Ottawa, Jill Kennedy and Caroline O'Neill. In Toronto, Andrew Johnson, Luca Capone, Kathy Zabokin, Andrew St. Germain. Nyawa Miigwech and thanks for listening.